0: Welcome to the Preaching Ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what he has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for his glory.
1: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 1 through 12, commonly known as the Beatitudes. Uh, If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word.
0: Here we are, and uh, we are officially kicking off the series. Last week, we began our look into the Sermon on the Mount, which we discovered was Jesus' teaching for his disciples. This was the first of five discourses that Jesus was going to give to his followers, in particular as they gathered together and he gave them very specific instructions as to who they were and what they were called to do. What is a disciple of Jesus? What does a disciple look like? How does Jesus instruct these disciples? How does he instruct us as disciples? And Jesus had just called them and now he begins to teach them. And so last week we looked at, we looked at, That call in particular. And what did it mean? What would it be to be called by Jesus? Would we too be called by him to follow? Are we willing to repent and to accept his call on our lives? It wouldn't be easy. It wasn't easy for those disciples to leave their lives behind and it's not going to be easy for us either. And so are we willing? And we really need to think about that. Today we are going to take a look at what a kingdom of disciples looks like. And you see, Jesus was teaching them here about his kingdom. His kingdom had now come and it was a new era for the followers of God. The kingdom would have particular characteristics and those who are part of it would be able to see if, in fact, they displayed those characteristics. And so this is a very convicting sermon that Jesus preached. It's very much a dividing line as to who is his followers and who are not his followers. What does a follower look like? What do they not look like? It's one of those measuring stick type passages. And so this is convicting. It's also one that is so helpful. Are you in the kingdom are you outside of the kingdom? And we will know very clearly by the end of this sermon that Jesus preaches to us. And what is especially beautiful about this sermon is that Jesus doesn't just lay out the cost of being a disciple and living in his kingdom, but he also lays out the blessing. He lays out the cost, but he lays out the blessing. And so hence the terms, blessed are you. And and then at the end of it, he says, for they shall. And then there's a promise that's attached to it. So every time Jesus gives one of those characteristics of a kingdom disciple, he always follows it with a benefit. It's not going to be, here's the characteristic, it's not an easy characteristic, but here's the benefit. Here's what it will provide. I don't know if you've ever done a cost-benefit analysis. I'm sure you have. I think in many ways we live our lives with cost-benefit analysis. I do them all the time. And I'm starting to find out that one of the biggest factors has become, uh, you know, like when I'm deciding a cost-benefit, it's YouTube. YouTube has become a deciding factor. Yes, that's right, like this past fall, Annika, she had a car that just kept stalling for no reason, her car, and so it was just randomly it would stall, and so just when you're like driving down the road, and so if you're making a turn into oncoming traffic and if the car stalled, you know, that's a, that's a serious problem, it's not good, and so something had to be done. And so it's a cost-benefit. Do I try to troubleshoot this and possibly fail and spend hours in the process, or do I take it to a mechanic who will do it correctly and charge me lots of money? cost benefit the final decision will be made how is there a youtube video that addresses this exact problem on this exact year and exact model of car that i could possibly figure out the answer was yes there was and so for $20 i bought a sensor on amazon and i did the repair myself thank you very much yes
1: <laughs>
0: yes that is worthy of applause i will have to say that was a one-off. Don't, don't bring your cars to me for repairs. That'll probably never happen again. But next up, do I try to repair the leaky shower head in our bathroom that is a result of a worn out cartridge in the handle? Or do I hire a plumber to come and do the job right? Stay tuned. That most likely will be another sermon illustration in the near future, I'm sure. And you know, I don't know if James is here, but he might get ready for a phone call. Cost benefit, is it worth it? What is the outcome gonna be? You do it with almost every decision that you make. But how about when it comes to being a follower, a disciple of Jesus? This happened all through the New Testament. We see a cost benefit analysis by every disciple that followed Jesus. The 12 did. They, they looked at the cost benefit and they said, okay, let's do it. The crowds, they said, not worth it. There was a lot. There were thousands of people that came along Jesus and they just simply said, no. What will you say? See, Jesus helps us in this, and all the while he gives us very detailed insights into what a disciple of his is. And so let's look at that now. I want to make some intro comments, first of all, in regards to the setting, in regards to the kingdom that's talked about, and the word blessed. And then we'll take a look at the eight Beatitudes that Jesus mentions. You know, if you ever want an eight-point sermon, this is the easiest eight-point sermon outline that you could ever think of. So we could do a whole sermon on each one, but we are going to look at them as a whole this morning. And This is going to give us a very accurate measuring stick, you might say. We will be forced to answer the question with each beatitude of saying, is this me? And if not, am I willing to go there? And so hopefully if we'll say, you know, unfortunately this isn't, this isn't me this morning, but man, I want to go there. I want to be able to get there. So let's just, first of all, take a look at this setting. If, if you start actually the verse before, in chapter 4, verse 25, it says, "...great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing these crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him." That's not really expected. I mean, if you look at what Jesus is doing here, he just started to teach and to heal and to perform miracles. Great crowds were following him. The crowds were coming. They heard and they came. Like that's great, right? That's what you want to have happen. You want the people to come. Just what he wanted. Isn't that what every leader of every movement wants? Great crowds, as many people as possible. You know, we will live in an age where everything is about followers. How many followers can you get on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram? Are you an influencer? If so, how can you leverage that to get even more? It's always about building more, more, more. As soon as you get somewhat famous, start a podcast so you can get even more listeners. Everyone has done this that you will find on any kind of platform, whether that's Jordan Peterson or Theo Vaughn or Jason Bateman or Jason and Travis Kelsey. Gaining popularity and you start a podcast. Increase your reach, but they didn't invent that. Everybody does it, but they didn't invent it. It was happening in Jesus' day. This is what the rabbis wanted. This is what many people who were building up followers around them wanted. Once you start getting the word out and people started coming, you leverage that and you get more and more. And that wasn't going to be the way of Jesus' kingdom, though. No. Jesus' kingdom was very different. As soon as the great crowd started following him, what does he do? He hikes up a mountain to get away from them. Like the only ones willing to follow him there are his disciples, women and men. And that's where he sits down and he starts preaching a long sermon. Like we have just a few minutes, we could get through that sermon in like 15 minutes if we read through it, but this is probably at least a whole day long of a sermon. It's only 15 minutes that we get, but it's enough for us. It tells us a whole world of things in such a short period of time. So there's the setting. Now the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is talking all about the kingdom of heaven in these verses. And in fact, that's kind of the overall theme of this sermon on the mountain. these chapters. This is the world that we enter into when we become a follower of Jesus Christ. We enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wherever there are followers, there is the kingdom. We enter into it now and its full inauguration will be when he returns. It's an eternal kingdom that we already enter into here on earth. The kingdom of heaven has extraordinary benefits. And Jesus shares those benefits with his disciples. You see, Jesus often talks about the kingdom of heaven and he talks about this earth. And it's not really a dichotomy in Jesus's mind about these two things. You don't have to choose between them because down the line, these two things merge into one. And the coming kingdom of heaven will be greater than anything we can ever imagine. Jesus wants to talk about that. He wants to assure us of that. He wants to hold that out as a benefit for us. And as a great privilege that we can enter into. And then, blessedness. Now, contrary to popular opinion, blessed does not mean happy, even though there are translations that have translated it that way. Happiness is really only a subjective feeling. But Jesus is not declaring how people feel, but rather he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is not a feeling, it's an objective statement about how God feels about his disciples. Blessed are those, is a declaration. Now we're used to seeing hashtag blessed on social media about how beautiful, good, and shiny life is, you're happy to be blessed. But think about these people who are sitting there with Jesus. Would they have sent out that kind of a message? These are some very weary folks who when they hear a description of their aching heart, they lift up their their heads when they hear what is theirs. They're weary, they're longing, and they hear these promises and their countenance is lifted. The kingdom is being declared to them. Comfort is being declared to them. Total satisfaction, being called sons of God, a great reward for all of those who were listening what this would have done to their hearts. Kent Hughes states that blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual. That means to be approved or to find approval. So, when God blesses us, what this is saying is He approves us. Of course, there is no doubt that such blessing will bring feelings of happiness and that blessed people are generally happy. But we must remember that the root idea of blessed is an awareness of approval of God. Blessed are those, approved by God are those, is a way that we can think about this. Not simply a nice wish from God, but it is a pronouncement of what we actually are. We are approved. That's an amazing thing to begin to consider, being approved by God. So let's take a brief look at each of these eight Beatitudes and see how Jesus characterizes a disciple of his and the blessing that they receive. So verse three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. Now we can look at a statement and think, It to mean something like walking around saying, you know, woe is me. I'm poor in spirit. Woe is me. But what this means is that disciples of Jesus recognize that they are spiritually poor in and of themselves. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have a deep spiritual poverty when we stand before God. That's how we come to God. So the first great principle of the Sermon on the Mount is to know that we cannot meet its standards by ourselves. This is a kingdom that will not be gained by our own merit. It's not a list of high but yet attainable goals as if we could just motivate one another and say, you know, you can do it. Let's just keep on trying. We can get there. As D.A. Carson puts it, being poor in spirit is not a lack of courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. The kingdom of heaven isn't given to just elite people. It was given to the poor to the despised, to the prostitutes, to the sinners. People who know that they can offer nothing and do not try to pretend that they can. The poor in spirit are the ones who recognize that it is only God who can help their spiritual state. He must do it and we must recognize it. We are not and cannot be morally worthy on our own merit. And so then here is the promise. And I think a great way of reading this verse would be this, Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe that? That there is nothing in and of yourself that can commend you to God? Then blessed are you. Well, what is this blessing? The kingdom of heaven belongs to those people who recognize this, and that's how Jesus starts and ends the blessings of this passage. He begins and he ends, meaning everything in between is contained within there as well. The kingdom of heaven is given to those that Jesus is speaking of here. The promise, no one who isn't poor in spirit will enter into the kingdom of heaven, recognizing that it's not us, it is not our merit, it is all God. Poor in spirit. The second... Is actually related when it says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, what is mourning for? What are we to mourn? Well, if the first beatitude was about our hopelessness apart from God, then the second must be referring to the mourning of our sin. We live in a culture that denies personal sin. But that is a very dangerous and hazardous thing to do, to deny that you are a sinful person or that you have the ability to sin. Others sin, we often think. Our culture looks around and thinks there's a great amount of sin that is happening in the people who are around them, but we ourselves, no, we don't sin, we're, we're good. Others need to attain to the standard that, we're, uh, that we are setting. And we love to point that out. And we love to be able to point out the sinfulness and the errors of others. We build museums, human rights museums about this. We cancel people for it, and we protest about it. But we ourselves, no, we're not the problem. We are never the problem. It's always about someone else. Blast people for their sins is the way of our world right now. And never admit your own. Well, unless you're about to get cancelled and you want to get your reputation or your job back, then you just fake apologize profusely. I'm sure we've all seen that. It's a disgusting thing. You know, I've mentioned Holocaust survival. Yehiel Danur before. He was a principal witness in the Nuremberg trials. He had to testify about Albert Eichmann, who was the architect of the Holocaust. And as Nuremberg was sitting there on the stand, they ushered in Dinur who, upon seeing Eichmann, he started to weep uncontrollably and he fainted. When interviewed by Mike Wallace, as to why he reacted like that, he said, was it fear, was it hatred when you saw this man? He said, no. Rather, as Dinur explained to Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was just an ordinary man. And so he said, I was afraid about myself, said Denur. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly as he. Wallace's subsequent summation of Dinur's terrible discovery was that Eichmann is in all of us. That's a horrifying statement, but it indeed captures the central truth about our nature. For as a result of the fall, sin is in each of us, not just the susceptibility to sin, but sin itself. Blessed are those who mourn. That is a correct posture, says Jesus, to be mournful about the sinfulness that is in each of our lives, the detestable state. What is the promise that is given for a heart that has that posture, that recognizes that, yes, it exists within me and something needs to be done about it. The promise that is given for that heart posture, the gospel. Jesus says, when that is the attitude of your heart, he says, you will be comforted. When you come to this realization, there is comfort. Isaiah chapter 40, God says, comfort, comfort my people. He says, your sin has been paid for. They were mourning for their sin. God says, comfort for you who mourn. He says, your sin has been paid for. Well, now comfort can just take over and it can give us what we've been longing for, the rest that we need. We look forward to that day when sin will be removed forever and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, it says in Revelation 21. Do we have a mourning over that an anticipation of what it will mean when it is eradicated forever that God has already done it in fact in our lives. Blessed are those who mourn. The third is meekness. Blessed are the meek in verse 5. We often think of meek as being timid or even cowardly. But you know in Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 it says that Moses was very meek. In fact He was more meek than any other person on earth. So then what does that mean about meekness? Because I would say that he was anything but cowardly, Moses. You know, a better word for this might be gentle. It's a gentleness of love, of good manners, of self-discipline, and quietly trusting and submitting yourself to God. Gentleness. You know, many of these beatitudes, they're taken right from the Old Testament. Jesus leaned so heavily The Psalms were his prayer book, and the one we find in Psalm 3711 that says, The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. This is a promise that the people have known for many hundreds of years. The meek will inherit the land, and they will enjoy great peace. The rest of the chapter explains what they are like. They don't fret because of evil people, it says. They trust in the Lord. They do good. They delight in the Lord. They are still before Him. They refrain themselves from anger. This is the meekness that the Bible speaks of, that Moses exemplified, that we too are called to have. These are the ones who will inherit the earth, Jesus says. Why? Because they take what God provides for them and they enjoy it. In contrast to others who just fight for more and fail to enjoy even what they do have. We're grateful for what we have been given, for what God has given us, and we respond with a gentleness of attitude towards others and ourselves, not fighting for more and failing to enjoy the benefits of what we already have. Blessed are those who are meek. And then in verse 6, is blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. This is an incredible, incredible statement when we really get a sense of what's being talked about here. To hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Now coming out of the Christmas season, it's almost hard to remember what it was like to be hungry. We went to so many family gatherings and meals. that I was like stuffed for a week. Each gathering we went to, there was a common refrain that happened amongst us. Let this be a lesson, not to make so many snacks next year. It's so much abundance. You can't even take it all in. We ate so much that the snacks and Christmas baking, they hardly even got touched. You just get to a point where you can't even eat anymore. A huge meal, dessert, and then the snacks and the baking come out. It's wonderful, but it gets to be a lot when it goes on for a whole week. You almost get tired of it. But do you know what it's like to hunger and to thirst? That's not something that many of us know anything about. What it truly means to hunger and thirst when you are truly hungry or thirsty. Most of us have never been. But when that becomes the point, when that becomes our reality, all you can focus on is getting nourishment. There's nothing else that really matters. Everything else in life becomes secondary. And you can't even concentrate on anything but getting those immediate needs that you have met. This is to hunger and to thirst for something. And this is what we are called to be like for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is a central verse that is a hallmark verse because the righteousness that is mentioned here is not the imputed righteousness of Christ. We don't hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness. That's not what he's getting at here. That is more of a Pauline thought, and this in Matthew's Gospel is referring to, as it always does in Matthew's Gospel, practical holiness. The traditional term righteousness. This in Matthew's Gospel is the way he speaks of righteousness. We talked about this when we had our responsive reading this morning. This is what the responsive reading from Colossians was all about. It's living a life according to the holiness of God, to hunger and to thirst for that kind of righteousness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this He says this about this verse. He says, "I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to themselves in this whole manner of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements in all of Scripture, you can be quite certain that you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. Is your longing for holiness in your life like the longing for food and for nourishment, to be more like Jesus? to be righteous. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If so, we are told that we will be satisfied. If you don't, you need to examine the foundations again. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. We sometimes use the words grace and mercy together, but is there a difference? Grace and mercy. Carson suggests that grace answers to the undeserving, while mercy answers to the miserable. This means that we are to be compassionate and gentle, especially towards those who are miserable and helpless. Merciful. Not just to the ones that it's easy to be merciful to, but to those who may be miserable and helpless. We are able to do this. We are able to forgive. And why is that? Well, because we ourselves have been forgiven. We have been shown mercy. Do you consider yourself easy to love? Do you think it was easy for God to love you, to save you, to rescue you? Or were you miserable and helpless like we discovered in our earlier blessednesses? Blessednesses? Beatitudes, we'll call them. What is our posture? We are able to forgive and to be merciful because this is what has been shown to us. This was our state. See, there will always be those among us who are hard to love. Sometimes those who are downright miserable. I'm not going to make eye contact with anyone while I say that. (laughs) So you don't think I'm talking about you. But we must act mercifully to others. Whether that is at a members meeting, whether that's while you're serving in ministry together, whether that's while you're serving the community and in all the circumstances that we find ourselves in, working and serving and living together, inside and outside of the church as well. You know, in our communities and in our families, showing mercy, showing mercy even to those who it is difficult to be loving towards. If we do, we too will be shown mercy. That is a promise. The pure in heart, verse 8. Here's another beatitude that Jesus takes directly from the Psalms. In Psalm 24, it says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we who are familiar with Paul's gospel approach will know that this happens only through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He is the only way we can be made pure and clean, but Jesus is not talking about a passive approach to purity simply receiving it only, but we must also be indwelt by it. And so we ask questions of ourselves like these questions. What do you think about when nothing else is pressing? Questions that kind of get to where our heart is at. What do you think about when nothing else is pressing? How comfortable are you with even subtle forms of deception, of lying and deceit? How comfortable are you with those things? What is it that you want more than anything else? What and whom do you love? To what extent are your actions and words reflections of what is in your heart? To what extent do your actions and words constitute a cover-up of what's in your heart? You see, our hearts must be pure and clean and unstained? Those are good questions to ask of ourselves. The promise is that when we are pure in heart, we will see God. And so our hearts must be transformed. Something must happen to our heart, and we need Jesus to come into our lives, His Holy Spirit, to do this work in us, to draw us to Himself in this purity. It will fully one day happen, but even now, more accurately than before, we were pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Not just a peaceful person, but a peacemaker. And this goes beyond gospel peacekeeping. It has a wider reach than that. It also seeks to lessen tensions between people, to seek solutions, to ensure the communication is understood, even when, and maybe especially when, you are personally involved. Remember when Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, a soft answer will turn away wrath. The reward is that you will be called the sons of God. And that is specific. It's not just children, but it's sons. Men and women will be called this as the term of significance. It has deep significance. In Jewish thought, a son was one who bared the character of the father. So if someone calls you a son of a gun, or you can think of other son of words that are out there, It means that you bear the characteristics of that thing. If you're a son of a gun, then I guess you'd bear the characteristics of a gun. You're cold, you're hard, and you can cause damage. So a son of a gun is, sorry, a son of a gun, a son of God. (laughs) We're done with that now. We won't talk about that anymore. A son of God, then, means the same thing. There's a characteristic that is there. That ultimately it inherits all that is His. So we become more and more like Him. He says, you will be called the sons of God. You will be the, people will see us and they'll say, oh, you, these are people who bear God's characteristics. They're good characteristics. This is the promise for the peacemaker. You're living like your father, the one who made perfect peace with you. We are called to live that as well. And then finally, number eight. The eighth beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, this last beatitude is stated briefly here in verse 10, but it's expanded on in verses 11 and 12. And I think Christians sometimes believe they are persecuted. Sometimes, I think when in fact they're just maybe being rude or insensitive or offensive, they think, oh, I'm being persecuted. It's like, "Nah, you're just kind of, uh, you you know. They're known for, some of these people could be known for their lack of Christian character, not their display of it. So they're not really being persecuted. But this blessing is restricted to those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. That's what Jesus says. Because of the way they are living like Christ, the kind of things that we have just been discussing, those who live as Jesus lived with his righteousness. The reward for this, once again, is the kingdom of heaven. And so this beatitude serves as a test for all of the beatitudes. And Carson states that this beatitude may be the most searching of them all. If the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may fairly be asked where righteousness is being displayed in their life. And if there is no righteousness, no conformity to God's will, how shall that person enter the kingdom? Well, what is the reward? The reward that is promised for those who are persecuted is one thing. Verse 12 says that their reward will be great in heaven. This means that Jesus' disciples must determine how they live and what their values will be and how they endure suffering through the perspective of eternity. This perspective of eternity is what Paul picks on He picks this up in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says, These light and momentary struggles are achieving for them an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's a reward and a blessing that is going to come that will far exceed any of the suffering and the persecution that we might experience now. These disciples will be like the prophets who have gone before them. God's people have always been under the watchful and condemning eye of the surrounding culture right from the very beginning of time. This becomes then not a depressing realization, but it becomes a sign that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. When billionaire John Rockefeller died, the public became understandably curious about the size of this famous man's fortune. One reporter who was determined to find out how much this was secured an appointment with one of Rockefeller's highest aides, And he asked the aide how much Rockefeller had left behind. The man answered simply, he left it all. He left it all. Right? Not so for those who have been persecuted for their sake of righteousness. The reward is great. The reward is great. Great is your reward. And this word great is polos, which means immeasurably great. We can't even fathom how great this reward is. God will not permit what has been done for his glory to go unrewarded. Hear Paul's assurances when he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord. The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing." the great reward for those who long for His appearing. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. So this morning, the question that Jesus lays before us is, are you blessed? You are blessed if these heart characteristics are found in your life. Recognizing your sinfulness, mourning over that sinfulness, and developing a hunger and a thirst for the things of God. May this be so for you today. There is a cost to it. Persecution wasn't just for Jesus and for his first disciples. It's for all who follow him. There is a cost, but it is a cost with the greatest blessing that could ever be, and that is approval by God and life everlasting in the kingdom of heaven. May we know it. Let's pray. God, this is our desire, our desire to, de- to be declared approved by you. And so, Father, I thank you that you give us the way to do this. And, and God, as we see you clearly, as we've sung about you this morning and we've heard of you this morning, I pray that our hearts would long for you, that we would become more and more like you, that we would hunger and thirst for the things of God. Beyond everything else, Lord, may this be our primary focus and give perspective to all of our life, knowing that there is a great promise in the end, that great will be our reward, immeasurably great it will be. And that is a reward that is not just for the future, but we enter into it now. And so we thank you for your kingdom of heaven that we can be excited about, that we can rejoice in, that we can be a part of. And so, Lord, may we be just joined closely together with one another in this kingdom to continue to further your kingdom and expand your kingdom in our communities, in this city, even in this neighborhood, Lord, for your glory. We thank you for these promises that you have given us, and may we take them seriously as we weigh ourselves before them this morning. And that it wouldn't be just a work of our flesh, but, Lord, a work of our hearts. So circumcise our hearts, Lord, to be for you, to long for you. We need you for this, God, and so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com, where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.